Welcome to the RSP Cast. I'm Matt Waldman with the Rookie Scouting Portfolio. We're beginning a a new series, or maybe updating an old series, um, with RSP's film and data. And um, my co-host for this season is Adam Harstead, who is a football guy's writer who does just fantastic work. If you're not reading Adam's work during the season, during the off season, you're really missing out on a terrific redraft and dynasty fantasy GM and writer who covers you know broader topics a lot of times the things like how to value suspended players in fantasy football or who has more value the shooting star type of player like Derrick Henry last year or the steady producer like Ezekiel Elliott he also does a, a weekly column during the season called Regression Alert. We're going to talk about regression today. Um, we're going to talk about heuristics um, as well as Bayesian, um, Bayesian principles and how we apply that to fantasy football. So I'm really excited for Adam to join the show. We're going to, we're going to spend pretty much an hour you know, every week debating about what what we see from both a micro and macro perspective. So, uh, Adam, it's a pleasure to have you on and, and thanks for joining me this season. Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, I mentioned when you asked me if I wanted to do this, that, you know, one thing a lot of people don't know about me is I actually kind of like the sound of my own voice. I do like to talk. <laughs> so it's usually pretty easy to get me into things like this. <laughs> well, we're, we're approaching from the opposite angles because people seem to like the sound of my voice, but I don't like the sound of my voice. My wife will listen to podcasts and I have to leave the room. So, um, <laughs> but, but, you know, beginning with you know, things that we can, that we go over. I think you, you mentioned the idea of talking about Bayesian updating. So tell us a little bit about what that is and, and what you think about that from the standpoint of analyzing fantasy football. Yeah. Uh, so just to start off with, I mean, I'm apparently the data guy on this podcast. I joke that um, the film guys all think I'm a data guy and the data guys, you know, think I'm a complete narrative guy. Because <laughs> um, I don't really have, like, I got the concepts. I don't really have, like, the data chops. I'm not in Python or R and building out massive databases for the most part. I mean, I do a little bit of that, but for the most part. Yeah. Um, but I'm really big on the concepts of data analysis and, and the ideas and the underlying processes. Um, and Bayesian um, statistics is something like that. There's an actual formula, Bayes' theorem, that's long and complex. And if you're actually going to calculate it out, it's really, really hard. And I'm really, really lazy, so I have no time for that. But the concept of Bayesian statistics is that you have a belief, you know, and then you get new information and you update your belief in the direction of that new information. And how much you update is based on the strength of your initial belief and the strength of the new information. So an example I use is, um, let's say I have a belief that a woman I'm romantically involved with is a good cook. And um, I go over and she cooks me dinner and the dinner is bad. It's burnt, it's overcooked, whatever. Do I now believe, do I still believe she's a good cook? Well, if this is my wife who I've been living with for the past, I don't know, 15 years. Yeah, this new information, okay, she cooked a bad meal, but I've got this huge strong belief based on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of observations. Maybe I'm going to revise my estimate of her slightly downwards, but this new information is just a drop in the bucket. It's not changing my opinion much. If this is the second date and the first date was a really good meal and the second date was a really bad meal, you know, I'm probably updating my belief a lot, thinking maybe she got lucky on the first meal, maybe she got unlucky on the second meal. I don't know. But I'm always revising my estimate in the direction of new information. But the amount you revise your estimate is based on how strong the initial belief is and how good the new evidence is. Um, and we all, everybody kind of operates like that, kind of in this unconscious de facto way. I mean, obviously, you know, like nobody's going to think their wife's a bad cook after one bad meal. Um, but I try to be much more rigorous about it in my process and think, you know, like how strong was my prior belief? How strong is this new evidence? Am I overreacting or, or just as bad? Am I underreacting or have I, have I reached an appropriate balance and I'm updating an appropriate amount? That's, that's a great explanation. And I love the cooking analogy because I got greeted at the front door by my, when I was dating my wife and we were, and we got engaged in my, and she already told me she couldn't cook at all. But my, my, my grandfather-in-law welcomed me at the front door of his house. And he's an, he was an old country guy who 
worked in a, managed a sawmill for all his life. So he literally met us in the carport and he didn't say hello. He just looked at me and goes, you know, she can't cook, right? You know, so <laughs> I think he wanted to give me, but anyway, the, I love, I love this concept because we've been talking, you know, you mentioned Trey Sermon in our, you know, in our back and forth about some of the things we want to talk about. And Trey Sermon was, you know, obviously a guy I've been talking about a lot this week because I had him as my number one rated back last year in the RSP pre-draft and had, and then didn't budge from that in the post-draft when he went to the 49ers, even though he was, that was my worst fit for him um, pre-draft. That was something that I had mentioned, but I, I actually updated my thoughts on that thinking that, well, they drafted Trey Lance and I went in the wrong direction of thinking, well, with Trey Lance, they're going to run more zone read. That means that there's going to be more inside running in this offense for a guy like Sermon, who's very good as an inside runner. Um, and then also thinking, and I was applying, I was applying information and just making assumptions as opposed to what was existing with that situation. And and the assumptions were Trey Lance was going to change how they were going to run their offense. They were going to add that more of a wrinkle, and they were bringing Sermon in because of that, because they traded up to get him. And B, that Kyle Shanahan, who's always liked the fast backs who were better at simple decisions, like um, Tevin Coleman and um, Jarek McKinnon, guys who, who may have been outside, you know, even... Coleman was an outside zone runner at Indiana, but when you watched his game, they went with gap oriented principles really where it was like, don't, you don't have to manipulate defenders into um, blockers. You just, we're going to get the crease set up for you and you hit that thing as hard as fast as possible. And there aren't really a lot of cutback decisions. And he runs his outside zone offense more in line with those ideas. It's like, I'm going to get you, we're going to get you the crease, and if it's not there, don't worry about it. Just hit it hard. You know, I mean, you're going to make cutbacks where you can, but it's not as designed in the way that we that other offenses may do have the design cram, cutback, or bounce. And uh, so those two things had me thinking, well, maybe because they're valuing Sermon a little bit more, they're going to, and they're using the quarterback, they're going to, that they have that they're going to have in the future they're going to adjust to that and of course that didn't happen and they went with the runner who was much more like coleman and matt Breda and jarek mckinnon in elijah mitchell and sermon never just really fit in that and from i had a conversation with russ landy yesterday in my scout in our scout talk podcast and russ said most likely from what i from what i would know with coaches that I've observed in my years in the NFL is that is that Shanahan probably if Shanahan was on board with the Trey Sermon decision he probably thought that well this is a simpler way of doing things Sermon's a very instinctive runner or a very prepared runner who can who makes a lot of decisions to manipulate defenders and the blockers well we can just tell him he doesn't have to do that and then he can just, and he can be able to just do things simply because we like how he breaks tackles. He's a rugged runner. He's a smart player, but he could just turn that part off of his brain. And my first thought was, you have someone who spent years preparing themselves to be able to operate at the speed of instinct. And I think this is the difference between what people think running backs do and run, 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 a lot of running backs actually do, or any position that's in the middle of the field that has to process a lot of bodies around them at one moment. And that's that you don't turn that off. You've prepared yourself to the point that all the different things that you see, the stimuli that you have around you, you react to it with a prepared move or prepared movements and you see information and you just instantly now think of doing those things or you do those things without thinking now, but you've put all this thought into it so that it automatically happens. Just like an example you you provided about valet drivers um, before our show that I'll let you bring up and talk about, but it's like that, that when you go from that perspective, he can't unthink that. He's it's all ingrained now. So he's been, you could even see him against the Vikings this past summer where you could see him react to an unblocked defender 
and he's a and he slows down to cut back and and you can you can almost tell that he's like this is what I would have done I've been trying to work hard to to unthink that or to un un not react to that anymore but he was still reacting to it and it would slow him down and you go well that was the right decision in theory for what you had learned how to do but what Kyle Shanahan wants you to do he was like oh I did it again you know it was that kind of behavior and I think that they realized that he just wasn't a good fit but for me that's the thing people when he went to Philadelphia people were like well aren't you so excited he's going there they're a great offensive line and Miles Sanders has some issues and the fact that he's on the active roster and you had him rated as your number one running back and I'm like well no I mean he still has, now he has all these layers of things that are updated that you have to prove. Like, is he not going to overthink everything now that he's out of San Francisco because he spent a year trying to learn something new and now he may be, he may lack confidence. He may be overthinking everything. He's now not a pick who they traded up to get. He's a guy that uh, the, the, Eagles tried to trade for before he was cut, but he was essentially cut with basically a reputation now in the NFL of a, a reserve who they, they're doing their Bayesian principles as well in terms of, yes, we gave him probably a high enough grade that we want him to see that maybe this was just a bad, sit, bad fit situation, but we're not going to overspend because obviously the 49ers asked for more and we said, no, forget it. We'll see. We'll take our chances to see if he got cut. And he's number four on their depth chart right now. So that could change because with running backs in, in, in a lot of situations anyway, teams, even a guy like Shanahan says, we don't really know what we've gotten running back until the regular season when we see the actual way that they make decisions. Um, and with, you know, players playing at full speed with more complex alignments, more complex shifts and disguises. Can they incorporate and integrate all their different skills into those scenarios and be productive? And so, you know, Trey Sermon in three or four weeks could be the number two back, or if an injury could be the number one guy, um, or if Sanders falters, the same thing. So, but at the same time, like you said, you know, I would tell people, I'm like, well, you may be disappointed, but I'm not going to just... I may think that it, given the opportunity, he could be the number one back um, in terms of in his class still. But now that we have this information, you can't just go that way blindly without there's like no basis of logic in it at all. Right. I, the example you gave of thinking that um, San Francisco was going to start incorporating more concepts that were a better fit for Sermon. Um, I think that's a good example of, of Bayesian reasoning gone wrong yes. where it is evidence that that you know drafting Trey Sermon and Trey Lance that should cause us to update our beliefs in the direction of they're going to run more of these concepts but you didn't give enough weight to the prior evidence of all of the years of Shanahan's history where you know like that should have been like a, a small amount of weight you know here's a teaspoon of water rather than like a whole bucket full of evidence exactly exactly and that's part of and those are the types of things that you have to you just kind of have to account for and learn because I, I really, you know, where I went wrong is I thought in Atlanta, he had Devonta Freeman and, and, but in Atlanta in hindsight, and this may still even be wrong in terms of the rationale, but the rationale I, I currently have is that, well, he was the offensive coordinator. They probably had him in the room thinking about that. He wanted Tevin Coleman. And he probably deployed Tevin Coleman early on in that Super Bowl year when Coleman was a rookie. And Coleman didn't look good running outside zone. So they started incorporating gap plays for him, even though that was something he never really did. But it was the simpler version of, of running in terms of diagnostics. And they had a good center and they had a good inside, you know, interior line. And I could just imagine now that what probably happened was he wanted to use Coleman more. It wasn't working. And the coaching staff was like, listen, man, we, we know that Coleman's a talent. He could hit a big play at any moment, but our best runner right now, the guy we got to lean on and what our offense is really built on here. That's our strength is what Devonta Freeman does on the inside. We're going to use him more and we're going to pepper in, you know, Coleman this year and hopefully he grows into it and it took him a couple years and I thought well maybe he learned from that experience and thought this is what we want 
when in the reality was as soon as he became coach in San Francisco, he started bringing in all these guys who were Coleman-like, and that should have been a sign to say, no, he just now said, what I've got to do is make sure I have uh, a really strong perimeter blocking unit. And he had Trent Williams and George Kittle and Kyle Juszczyk and big, strong, wide receivers who were good blockers who have like special teams type of skills. Um, and he he just decided, I want the, the fewest, I, I want to give the running back the easiest possible opportunity because these guys get hurt all the time. And I need, and it's a tough, it's a tough sport on running the football. And I don't want to put all my eggs on one running back who once he's gone, I'm John Gruden and I'm screwed because Marshawn Lynch looks good for like four quarters or six quarters or nine quarters. And I, I invested in him to be my starting running back. And now he's gone for half the year and my offense doesn't have something special that it wants that, that it, that it had for early on in the year and we're screwed. Yeah. I, I want to pick up on something you said there about how San Francisco always has wide receivers with good special team skills. Um, so I do a lot of special teams projections for football guys. And that's like a million percent the case, like people who aren't looking at, at special teamers, like every year I'm going through their lineups and I'm like, okay, who could plausibly be the guy. And usually for most teams, the challenge is finding one guy who could be like the returner that year. And for San Francisco, the challenge is always like, which of these four guys who would all be like super qualified, which of these four wide receivers who would all be like totally credible number one returners are actually going to get reps and which are just going to, because they, they love that type of, you know, like the scrappy wide receivers, good in space. Um, and it, it makes sense because they're a good fit for what Shanahan wants to do offensively. But like they always have just this huge surplus of special teams caliber yeah, receivers without a doubt so would you, i'd like you to explain your approach with heuristics and in, in fantasy football um because it seems like that a lot of what one of one of the underlying themes of your work is is discussing this concept so could you explain that to to, to people who aren't really familiar with it and re-explain it to me who is who also is not as familiar as i probably should be yeah so a heuristic is a fancy word for like a rule of thumb um you know leaves of three let it be so it's a heuristic right not everything with three leaves is going to be bad but pretty much everything bad is going to have three leaves um the goal isn't perfect accuracy the goal is something that's very simple and easy to execute that will um have a have a strong track record you you avoid everything with three leaves in certain parts of the country you're not going to get poison ivy um or poison oak or poison sumac or whatever um so that's a good heuristic um and there's been a lot of research, um, you know, a lot of like analytics has pushed people away from heuristics. They don't want these vague, fuzzy rules of thumbs there. I call it team heuristics versus team projections. Uh, projection is not trying to say like, here's some rules of thumb about like, who will be good. A, a projection is trying to say like, this is what's going to happen. This is the path through which it's going to happen. And I don't mean to knock projections because you know, we have 20 years of fantasy football history where we've evaluated all these different processes and the, the people with projection based processes consistently dominate, including a lot of our uh, our peers at football guys like Bob Henry wins a lot of awards and he has a very projection heavy approach. He's projecting what's going to happen. This player is going to do this because of this. Um, and he's very successful with that. But I think I mentioned earlier that I'm just incredibly lazy and projections are a ton of work. Um, so I rely more on, on heuristics. So like in dynasty, one of mine is, you know, talented players usually get theirs eventually. Um, Larry Fitzgerald, he was having that, that slump later in his career when Arizona's quarterbacks were terrible. Uh, but my heuristic is Larry Fitzgerald is a talented wide receiver. He's probably going to get his eventually. And what path that takes, that's more of a projections question. How is Larry Fitzgerald going to get his? What's his target share going to be? Who's the passer? What's that passer's yard per attempt average? Um, uh, in the end, the, the route was Arizona brought in quarterback. They brought in Carson Palmer. And all of a sudden, Larry Fitzgerald was getting his again. Um, heuristics are really silent on the how. Um, they don't really envision a path, and a lot of people think that makes them weaker, but there have been studies that have found in um, very complex environments, heuristics can perform on par with or even better than complex models, complex algorithms. 
um, like the stock market is a great example. There's, um, you know, famous investing strategies. You have N dollars to invest, you know, you have, you have a thousand dollars to invest and you have like 10 different investments that you think are good investments. How do you allocate that thousand dollars over those 10 investments? And there's a lot of fancy portfolio theories like, oh, you're going to give like 30% to your number one pick and you're going to give whatever. There's, there's a lot of math figuring out. And then there's a very simple heuristic called one over N. If you have N different investments that you like, you give each investment one over N. You do just equal weighting across the entire thing. And they've gone back and they've actually compared portfolios that are doing these fancy investment techniques versus just simple one over N. And the one over N portfolios actually outperform the fancy investment techniques. It's a very simple heuristic that in a very complex environment proves very good. Um, the, the more complex models basically work better in situations where like all of the variables are knowable, like chess. You're not going to use simple heuristics in chess. You can, very, very complex models like, you know, Deep Blue and all these fancy chess programs. They're, they're very, very fancy algorithms and they will dominate anybody who's trying to go against them with simple heuristics because all of the variables are knowable. Yeah. But in the stock market, as in football, there's so many unknowable variables. It's a very complex situation. And the more complex a situation is, the better simple heuristics can do, which doesn't just mean hand wave everything away. Like the process of coming up with good heuristics is still involved. You have to, you know, expose things to scrutiny and test them and say you have your theory that talent always wins out. You're going to have to test that and see in the past, what would this have pre predicted? Were these predictions useful or were they um, not useful? Um, if they were not useful, you have to discard that heuristic and find a new one. And, and so it's still an intensive and involved process, but I like that it kind of lets me hand wave away all of the how questions, which are the harder questions. Um, you know, I think this guy's going to produce. How? I don't know. <laughs> so who, so what are some, other than, I've heard you talk about draft capital and talent. That's one I want to debate with you. But give me one that you, give me another one that's a, a, an example of a heuristic that you've used in fantasy that you found um, to 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 feel like is effective for you as a, as a fantasy GM? My big one in Dynasty, and um, this has kind of become um, kind of received wisdom in the Dynasty community now, but, but when I was hammering on it years ago, it was very much not the norm. Um, the rule is in rookie drafts, you should draft for talent and you should trade for need. If you have a team that has eight amazing wide receivers and you're on the clock in the rookie draft and the best player on the board by far is a wide receiver, Draft the wide receiver. It doesn't matter if you need a running back. It doesn't matter, okay? Because you can trade some of your other wide receivers to get that running back. But you want to maximize the total amount of, of value on your roster. So draft for talent, trade for need. Um, and I was talking about how you kind of want to expose heuristics to scrutiny. Um, I was going back through, you know, history, past draft results in some of my fantasy leagues recently. And I was looking at one league in particular and we had our startup draft in 2013, our first rookie draft in 2014. And um, I realized in that entire span, I have not spent a single top 30 rookie pick on a running back in that entire span. I've had, I think like 12 first round picks and 11 of them went to wide receivers. Um, I did take Noah Fant one year because it was a huge, huge tight end premium. Um, and it's not because I hate running backs. It's because I'm usually drafting in the back half of the first round, uh, which that was not a humble brag. That was just a brag. Um, <laughs> but I'm usually drafting really late. And the talented running backs are usually going really early. So when I'm on the clock, the most talented player is usually a, a, a wide receiver. Or the guy who I think is the most talented is usually going to be a wide receiver. Um, and somebody asked, okay, but what does your running back core look like? Is your running back core trash? Which is a great question because the mantra has two parts. The heuristic is draft for talent, trade for need. Even if I'm successful at drafting for talent, and I have been, I've landed, you know, Michael Thomas and Devontae Adams and Calvin Ridley in the late half of the first round. Um, but if I can't trade for need, then I'm going to have issues. But my running backs right now, I have um, four running backs projected to finish top 12 this season by football guys. I've got Jonathan Taylor, Leonard Fournette, Aaron Jones, and um, uh, who's my, oh, Austin Eckler. Yeah. And I traded for all of them. All of them came in trade. Usually trading those talented wide receivers that I drafted in the late first. Like I drafted 
um, Michael Thomas in the late first and later traded him for Alvin Kamara. Draft for talent, trade for need. I think that's great. And it's funny, I arrived I arrived on that, that conclusion through bad experiences in a league where, in a dynasty league that I was in, I've been in for probably 12 or 13 years. And it started off a strong team, but I drafted the team in a win-now situation. I had the likes of Peyton Manning and Marshawn Lynch and, and Antonio Gates. And those were three players I got rid of way too early um, in each of their instances and blew up my team way too early. And so I wound up for about three or four years in this dead zone of you know that middle area as a draft pick where you're not quite a playoff contender, but you're not bad enough to, to get a top pick. And I didn't have, I didn't have a, I had my only player that was decent was Russell Wilson. And, and the, and so what I ended up doing was, or I had more decent players, but I had decent wide receivers and Travis Kelsey and Russell Wilson. And so it was a, and it was a full IDP league. And I realized that I could build through waivers to get IDP players. That's generally something that a lot of people can usually do in, in a lot of leagues. So I was able to do that, but I couldn't get running backs. I, they, they just would never fall to me. So I realized, well, what do I need to do? And it's like, who are the players that I keep seeing having the most value? And it was kind of an extreme example, but for me, I was like, I'm gonna stockpile quarterbacks because I think that, you know, so I ended up, you know, I picked Jared Goff and it wasn't like, that doesn't seem like a great, a great pick, but he played well in year two. So then that was during this time where I had Russell Wilson and Goff. And then, then I was able to take Patrick Mahomes because he fell to me. Then Lamar Jackson fell to me. And before I knew it, there was a year where I literally had, you know, three or four of the top five quarterbacks and people now wanted to trade with me. And I had the advantage because they couldn't find quarterbacks who, who could be the uh, give them that advantage. So I would wind up being able to trade for miles Garrett, Nick Chubb, Jonathan Taylor. And that team ended up winning championships in three out of the past four years and having four championship appearances in that league in the past four years because of being able to draft for talent and, and trade for need. And, and yours is a much, you know, a much more succinct way of looking at it as opposed to having to explain to people, what do you mean by stockpiling talent at, at, at a position? But it's the, it's that it's that type of principle in it and and it's something now i recommend to people pretty much every year in the rsp or when they ask me questions about should i pick this player and i'll say well let's look at your roster and when we look at their roster it's normally well your strength is wide receiver keep keep adding wide receivers because most likely the talent that that's going to be difference making or it looks difference making to me isn't going to fall to you the odds are that they're not going to follow you or the player that you're going to get isn't is unlikely to do that. So take the best receiver you can. And in a year or two, you're going to get to pick. You're going to have far more options to choose from in terms of who you want to trade for. Or at least that's the that's the idea that you will. So, yeah, that same league where I've, I've just hammered wide receivers just because that's been um, best available. Um, I usually trade away my second picks, but um, five of my seven second round picks have been on quarterbacks because it's the late second. And I'm debating between like a quarterback who was drafted top five versus a running back who was taken in the fifth round. And I know we're going to get to draft capital and we'll have lots to say on that, but you know, and it's okay. I've got um, Deshaun Watson. I got Justin Herbert. I got even like the mediocre picks like Jameis Winston and Baker Mayfield. You know, I got a lot of good quality starts out of Winston um, I managed to trade Baker Mayfield, you know, when when the hype was at its peak. Um, and there's nobody, you know, looking back at those drafts, there's basically nobody who was on the clock in the late second round who would have offered anywhere close to the value of the quarterbacks, even even the mediocre quarterbacks I took. Um, and so, you know, I've got, I've already got two good quarterbacks. I'll take a third. That's okay. If that's the best talented player, because in the long run, you know, if a guy's on your bench, it doesn't really matter how many points he's scoring. It doesn't matter what he's doing. He's on your bench. It doesn't matter. There's no award for having the highest scoring bench. <laughs> Guy on your bench, his only job is to gain value, you know, and, and to 
either make his way into the starting lineup at some point in the future, which talented players are more likely to do, or to give you something to trade for points at a position you need, which talented players are more likely to do. They're more likely to gain and hold value over the long term. So uh, is there um, is there a time that you like to trade players or don't like to trade players? Because I'm just curious if you've put any thought into this and if there's anything worthwhile thinking about on this level. Because it seems like more and more, I don't like to trade before a draft. I don't like to trade before just before the season begins. Uh, and I, I feel like that if I do that, it's because someone is, th- that person has emotions built up to where that now they're skewing their value of a player. So, you know, someone offered me Miles Garrett just before the season started. And the deal they offered me it was just too good to refuse, so I took it. But if there's a player that I want to get rid of, I don't really want to try and offer that player before the season starts or before the draft because I feel like that I'm letting my emotion play into I'm overvaluing players that I want who I haven't seen enough yet in the NFL space or I'm over undervaluing a situation that I haven't seen enough data on, you know, dirt when the season starts. So I'm I feel like I'm I'd rather be in a situation where maybe our emotions are not skewed mine or my trade partners about what we're doing at the at the negotiation table and i feel like during the year it's a little easier to say all right we've seen this much from this player you know your team isn't good we know my team is we know what we both need and it's and it's just clearer and it feels like a more of a win 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 situation as opposed to a win lose um type of deal am i Am I putting too much, reading too much into that, or does that make sense? What are your thoughts on trading and when to do it, or do you do you don't even think about that type of a factor? Yeah, I usually try to focus all my trades um, sort of on days ending in Y. <laughs> um. This is exactly why I have you on this show. (laughs) I think you make a great point about, you know, it's very easy to get emotionally invested in, um, in players. And especially, you know, like before the season, you know, it's the, it's the silly season. What was the Vince Young that year he went to the Eagles and he declared they were the dream team because they won the off season and everybody's a champion before the season. Everybody's a star before the, before the foot hits the ball. Um, And I think it's very important if you're going to be a profitable trader to be able to divorce emotion from it as much as possible. I, there are a few players who I I will intentionally not divorce emotion. Um, I named one of my dynasty teams after Rob Gronkowski, and I, I had plenty of chances to trade Rob Gronkowski away for a profit. I could have flipped him for Travis Kelsey pretty late in his career. And I just decided, I'm like, you know what? No, I like this more with Rob Gronkowski on my team. If I eat the loss, I eat the loss. I can live with that. Um, Pat Mahomes is that guy now. I've got... Pat Mahomes on one of my team and and one of my league mates keeps coming after him and I'm like I'm going to be completely level with you like there's fair offers for Pat Mahomes and they're not going to get it done I'm not saying I would never ever trade Pat Mahomes but you would have to overpay by so much that I I think you would you know like blink and wince and walk away and I'm not trying to be a jerk about it I'm happy to trade anybody else on my roster but I just think this is so much more fun with Pat Mahomes on um so I'll usually try to reserve a little bit of space for emotion because um, it's fun. It's supposed to be fun. Yeah. If it's not fun, why are we doing it? Um, but by and large, I mean, I, I am a very, very high volume trader. I've turned over. Um, I've had years where um, 90 plus percent of my player starts were made by players I had acquired by via trade um, or like one week fill-ins off of waivers um, where like drafting a lot of good players, but they don't stick around very long because I'm flipping them for other good players. Uh, so I think I one of my biggest strengths is the ability to divorce emotion. And I keep a thread on Twitter of all of the terrible, terrible, terrible trades I've made over the years to kind of remind me that that if you're hitting 60% on your trades, you're, an, you're a phenomenal trader. And I hit about 60%. And that means 40% of the time I am just getting absolutely hammered and it's it's crushing and so i keep the thread and i go over it from time to time just to be like you know what's the worst that could possibly happen in this trade oh yeah it's this one where i traded 
um, AJ Green and Demarius Thomas for Maurice Jones drew right after Maurice Jones drew fell off, off the cliff. That's the worst that can possibly happen. And it was okay. My team was fine. I survived. There are other trades that offset it. Um, so if you're able to take the emotion out of it, I think it's easy to find win, win, win trades, um, which that's how you become high volume traders by, you don't, you don't become a high volume trader with win, lose trades. You do it with win, win trades. Um, and if you're able to do that, you can do that at any point in the season. Um, if you, if you're not able to do that, I think it's really smart to, to scout yourself and be like, all right, at, at this point, I, I don't think I can, I can trust my process enough to, to really, you know, put the weight of this trade behind it. Um, so I'm going to take a step back and then when I'm in a better place, I'm going to come back and I'm going to try this again. Yeah. And that's kind of where I'm at. I'm a low volume trader and I tend to trade for trade for need when I'm at the, when I feel like my team is at that point where I'd need that one or two, one or two more pieces and it can really put me in serious contention for a title then. And then I try and build in other ways um, to do that. But the, the fit, the uh, downside of that is that you can be too patient um, yeah. and wind up in scenarios where you have a team that's near that window, but it never gets over that window if you wait too long. And you don't take some of those chances to to acquire talent that you think can can make that change and so you know it is it's it's probably it it, it makes sense and and usually m most of the best dynasty players i know are high volume traders i think that there's there's something to that i've seen success with both approaches but if you're not going to be trading at high volume your your other processes really need to be on point yeah. Um, and also I, I would say probably most of the worst dynasty players, you know, are probably also high volume traders. Cause if you're a 60, 40 trader and you're, you're doing a lot of high volume trading, you're going to wind up with a juggernaut roster. And if you're a 40, 60 trader and you're doing a lot of trading, you're going to wind up with nothing. Yeah, you're you're going to wind up with a lot of number one picks going to other teams. Cause you traded them away in advance. Yeah. I'm in a league, the, the, the same league. There's a guy who who literally has owned the draft for the past three or four years, and he continues to own the draft. You know, I mean, he has pretty much, he has almost everybody's first round pick but mine. Um, he had, and, and a lot of the second round picks, and his roster just continues to churn every year. And that, that whole idea that he's gonna own the draft, pick all these great players and be a great team in three or four years. Well, it's, I think it's been six years now, and he's still, He's still churning through players because he hasn't made good trades and he hasn't picked good players um, that have worked or picked players that have worked out at least. And so there's, there is that downside for sure that that can happen. For a while, I thought the market on draft picks was way too soft. And so I went through like a six or seven year phase where I was the guy who was owning the draft. But the big thing is I wasn't using most of the picks. I mean, I would have at one time or another, I had, I think it was seven straight years where I had at least five first round picks at some point or another. Um, but I'm only executing like one or two a year. It's just, it was, it was a market inefficiency. I could buy low and sell high and I'm not usually a buy low, sell high kind of guy, but picks are weird because you know, they're not, since they're not players, they kind of function in this weird in between space where they're almost like a currency. Um, and you can do a lot more arbitrage on picks than you can do on players. For sure. For sure. So let's talk about the value draft capital. Cause I've seen you talk about, the idea of, um, you know, if the NFL has picked this guy early, that when you look at, you know, the, the early picks or you look at the where these players are picked, it tends to bear out into production. And and I want to talk about this a little bit more because I've often give a counter argument to this talking about that it's really more reinforcement of their of their risk management principles of how they create draft capital and talent is a factor, but it's not necessarily the factor, but it's, but at the same time, if you're going to play fantasy and you're going to do, and you're going to be a fantasy GM, it's still a, it's still, you can, it's one of those things where I say it's kind of more a, an, an argument about how you define um, talent as opposed to maybe defining opportunities to production. And I, and I say there's a difference with it, but for the, the average fantasy GM following draft capital, I think works, but I've, but as a talent evaluator, 
I, I tend to say, no, that's not all talent. In fact, talent might be one of 10 things that they look at to determine draft capital. So I want to get into that, but I want to, I want to talk about, I want you to talk about what you've looked at with that and, or do you want me to present mine first? I don't care. Either way, we could do. We could do. Oh, we don't. We disagree in the slightest. We're okay. we're a hundred percent on the same page on on all of this. Okay. I think the big difference is we're just optimizing for different things. You know, you're you're on the inputs end of the scale, and I'm on the outputs end of the scale. I think for a scout, draft capital is not is not really meaningful. That's not a meaningful input into your process. Right. You know, you're you're looking at. Um, you know, traits and abilities and, and skills and fit and things like that. Those are meaningful inputs. Um, I'm not scouting. I'm, I'm not making recommendations to teams as to who they should start. I'm making recommendations to fantasy jams about who they will start. Yeah. Um, and it, you're absolutely right that the great confound in production is is who the coaches give the ball to. And they're absolutely biased towards giving it to, to high picks. But from a fantasy perspective, it doesn't matter why the guy's getting the ball. It just matters that he is. Yeah. Um, so I'm hundred percent on the same page with you. There's, there's tons of talented players. You look at Tom Brady, Tom Brady was a six round pick. If drew Bledsoe never gets injured, it's entirely possible. Maybe not likely because Tom Brady is so good, but it's, it's within the realm of possibility that Tom Brady would have washed out of the NFL after four years and nobody would remember his name today. And he, if they did, they'd think of him as a career backup who couldn't get a second contract. That's entirely within the realm of possibility. And it's also within the realm of possibility that there are other sixth rounders who we don't remember today, who washed out of the NFL. And if anybody remembers, they only remember him as a career backup who could be maybe not the next Tom Brady, but you know, potentially hall of famers. We have, we've had lots of hall of famers come from sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th rounds, undrafted players, um, who are obviously very, very talented. And, and that should be the canary in the coal mine that, that tells us that talent is not limited to the early rounds, um, whereas playing time much more is limited to the early rounds. Yeah, and, and it's a, a good example is if, if, I don't have a, if I don't have a sudden death and I end up on a deathbed, I will not be recanting my idea that Cedric Pierman was a talented running back who, you know, and based on my thought that from what I've scouted him, the fact that he wound up on a team with Willis McGahee and Ray Rice at the time that Ray Rice was emerging and got cut very quickly, um, passed through Detroit, passed through Cleveland, and wound up in Cincinnati, who used him on special teams, and he became a Pro Bowl special teams player. And then Jay Gruden inherited him and kept drafting running backs because he had him labeled as a special teams guy. And then when they needed Cedric Pierman to come in and play, he flashed that 4-3 speed, he flashed that power, showed the receiving skills, good vision, and had some big games when they needed him due to injuries. And at the end of the game, at the end of those two weeks, the media was asking about him. He said, we really didn't know what we had in him. And that would be my example of a player who can fall through the cracks, talent-wise, due to draft capital, due to how coaches and, and teams, you look at the... Um, you know, look at the Jaguars and the Doug Marone literally had to ask the GMs and, and the operations staff for permission to allow James Robinson to compete for meaningful reps on the team before they opened up that competition. There has to be an agreement between coaches and the people who sign, literally create the contracts and determine what, how much financial, um, you know, expenditure they're going to put into this player. And so money drives a lot of these things in terms of number of reps and, and stuff like that. So I, that's the, that's kind of where I look at it. But when people say, well, then what do you do about it? I said, well, st still at the end of the day, if you're a fantasy GM, the simplest way to look at it is they're going to, these guys are going to get the opportunity. So draft capital drives opportunity, you, you know, yep. and that's, that's kind of where I look at it. A guy that we've both agreed on. And, and I think it's from different ways of examining examining the player has been Hunter Renfro. So I wanted you to talk about why you were on the Hunter Renfro train early because you were on it earlier than I was. And then I started watching his his tape and was, and I mean, I always knew he was a great route runner, but watching him be able to separate and, and win certain types of targets that I didn't think he'd get the opportunities to, to earn um, and, you know, really solidified for me that not only is he a terrific slot receiver, but he's also a very good all-around threat who could be used outside the box of being just a, 
uh, um, short yardage kind of high volume player. Yeah, so I actually was not on Hunter Renfro early, and I should okay. have been, because um, one of the things that I found over the years, um, you know, I, I joke that, um, you know, oh, you know, Matt Waldman spends a thousand hours grinding tape just to tell you Hunter Renfro is good. I did it. And, you know, I looked at I looked at a spreadsheet for 30 seconds and I could have told you that. Um, but the reality is you spend a thousand hours grinding tape to develop a scout's eye. And then once you have that eye, you can probably tell relatively quickly and in a yeah. relatively short time, which players are good. Yeah. Um, I don't grind tape um, by any measure, but I do spend a lot of time, you know, like mindlessly clicking through player pages on pro football reference and, you know, sorting columns on pro football focus. And um, I develop kind of a scout's eye for numbers and spreadsheets. And, and there are things that over time, you look at a lot of numbers on a page and there are things that's patterns that start to appear to you. And one of the ones I noticed um, quite early on was that yards per route run is actually a phenomenal predictor for rookie wide receivers. Yards per route run, for those who don't know, you just take a receiver's receiving yards. You divide by the total number of routes they run. Um, a lot of people think that like yards per target is a good wide receiver efficiency stat. And it's a terrible wide receiver efficiency stat because it ignores everything that happens before the target. Like the leaders in yards per target are typically guys like Kenny Stills or Devery Henderson, who, the you know, they're not great receivers at getting open. The quarterback's only going to throw to them when they're wide open. But because they're wide open, every time the quarterback throws to them, it's going to be a home run. Um, and that doesn't mean high yards per target doesn't mean they're a good receiver because they might run 200 yard, 200 routes to get those like four times when they're wide open. Um, so yards per route run is really the best measure of production per opportunity. And it's, it's kind of like the gold standard stat. Like a lot of stats that people love just are not very good, not very predictive. Yards per route run is amazing because it like, it's one of those things that's so strong that even considering draft capital doesn't improve it. Like if you have a highly drafted receiver who had a terrible yards per route run as a rookie and a low drafted receiver or an undrafted receiver who had an amazing yards per route run as a rookie, usually that undrafted guy is going to outperform the highly drafted guy straight up. Um, I mean, not entirely. Like having a bad yards per route run isn't necessarily a death knell, but having a great yards per route run as a rookie, like it's almost a universal sign of success. Um, and I was on this train back in like 2010, 2011, 2012. Um, Percy Harvin was one of the guys who got me on there because he was he just had an amazing yards per route run um, his first couple of years. Um, and, you know, his, his career obviously did not turn out how we expected, but it really wasn't for lack of talent. Um, and then so I started kind of half-heartedly tracking it over the years. Um, and Hunter Renfro was one of the guys who popped up with over two yards per route run. Um, and I was looking for, for reasons to dismiss him. You know, I'm like, oh yeah, everybody who has a high yards per route run winds up being awesome. Except maybe Hunter Renfro, you know, his, his total routes run was kind of low. Isn't that always the case? Kind of you know? Right. Right. And there are, you know, like if a guy only runs 50 routes, his yards per route run is not especially meaningful. So I, there's some truth to that process that, that a small sample size, um, should make you more skeptical of, of results. Um, and I now I've built a more rigorous, rigorous model that actually, incorporates playing time and i do think it improves the predictive power but hunter renfro had uh, like 2.1 yards per route run as a rookie the threshold i usually look at is 2.0 um so he should have been setting off alarm bells in my head saying like hey maybe this guy's gonna be someone um you know like some other late round undrafted type rookies who who made that high yards per route run list as rookies were guys like stefan diggs tyreek hill um yeah. uh Doug Baldwin as a like pure undrafted player who had like no hype after his rookie year, like giant neon flashing letters based on yards per route run that like this kid has talent. This kid can play. People think that there's a lot of development going on in the NFL, but a lot of times, you know, talented wide receivers are talented and, and productive in year one. They just earn trust and playing time. Yes. Um, so I, I've since, since the miss on Renfro where I should have been more on him. And then I wasn't, um, I kind of came around to him earlier than consensus saying like, I, I, I think I can dismiss this, but I'm not sure I can dismiss it. So like speculatively, maybe send out some offers on Renfro just in case I'm wrong in dismissing it. And, and I think that was definitely the case. I think I was wrong to dismiss that result. Um, and partly as a result of Hunter Renfro, I've, I've kind of made that model more robust, um, 
so that I can, you know, when the next Hunter Renfro comes along, I'm not going to be quite as dismissive of him. Yeah, and I think from the, and you were still earlier on it than most, and I and I think that from a scout's point of view, what you what you touched upon about how about talent and about you know talented wide receivers were talented when they entered the league. They just needed you know they just needed some time and the trust of their quarterback. And part of the trust of their quarterback is I think when we think about the word talent for that is they were talented at being able to run the mechanics of the routes. They had the talented athletic traits and, and profiles. They were also someone that we knew within time, like Devontae Adams was talking about this this year, about how when he came to Green Bay, you know, he wasn't worried about the physical end of playing football at the NFL level. He wasn't intimidated by the athletic ability of the corners or the techniques of the corners or the techniques that he had. He said it was really about, it took him a few years to understand how to be on the same page with a quarterback and with reading the, the, the varieties of coverages that he deals with at the NFL level that are more complex or the defenders play them with a greater level of savvy to disguise them or to bait defenders. And he had to learn what to study as opposed to necessarily, you know, he knew how to execute. He just didn't know what to execute and when, and that took the most time for him. And that's, that's indicative with a lot of receivers who are young. So the talent's there, but it's about, can you said like developing the trust and that's the mechanics of part of that is, you know, being able to make the right adjustments and, and think the way the same quarter that the quarterback does. I've talked a lot this week about Romeo Dobbs and how Aaron Rodgers said he keeps making a wild play every day in camp. But then by the end of camp, he's like these young players didn't mention anybody by name, but Dobbs had to be one of them. These young players, you know, they got to stop making mistakes or they're not going to see a lot of playing time. And then suddenly all the people who were off Sammy Watkins even being on the roster and are like, Sammy Watkins is producing well in real football situations and is likely going to make the team. And, and yes, fantasy players are going to say, well, is he going to stay healthy enough? Because when he's healthy and plays at least 13 games, at least three out of the four years he's done that, he's been a at least a wide receiver too in 12-team leagues, 12-team uh, um yeah 12 team formats and uh you know and the big question is can he stay healthy and then he can be consistent you know uh, a player enough that you feel comfortable enough with his production week in and week out to to work with him and i know that's an area that we can talk about too is consistency and whether that really bears out because you've had some good thoughts about that too i'd love for you to end on that is to is just discuss about is consistency a thing you know is that something i know it was something i explored early on and then i just abandoned it because i felt like there's nothing predictive about it i'm just reporting how consistent the player was week in and week out to perform to a certain bar of fantasy performance that that we could look at i used to look at the averages of what a what a running back two um fantasy points per game was what the you know at least the low end like the running back ranked guy who was ranked RB24 what his number was what his tier of points were over a five-year average or a 10-year average or a seven-year average or three-year average you know I would look at those things and then look at you know who was the running back 12 who was the running back three and kind of do tier it by elite low-end running back one low mid-range running back two low-range running back and do it for every receiver like that and every position like that and just kind of report how many games they had over the past year or two years. But there were so many variables with that. And there was nothing that I could really explain from it that was going to be anything meaningful from what I could see with that perspective. So I just stopped doing it because I just felt like it wasn't. All I was doing was giving people false hope about the uh, about consistency of performance. Um as opposed to, you know, because you, when you report some past information, but you don't really have anything that's driving that, that is an insight that people can take away, um, that is extremely reliable. I just felt like I was selling false information when I started doing it early in my career. And I just said, yeah, forget this. And I remember you doing some work with, con with the idea of consistency and saying, well, really, if they score points, they score points. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I would like to draw a distinction. I mean, I like a lot of your work. Um, I was mentioning earlier, you know, about draft capital. There's a big difference between the kind of work you're doing and the kind of work I'm doing. You're much more process based. Um, and I think in terms of processes, consistency is wildly important. 
Um, you know, if you, you know, like earning a quarterback's trust, if you're where you say you're going to be every single time, the quarterback's going to trust you to be there. Yeah. If you're where you say you're going to be 70% of the time, quarterback's not going to take that risk. Consistency of processes, wildly important. Yes. Um, I'm much more outcome focused. You know, I don't really care how that happened. I just want to know what happened. And consistency of outcomes is completely, completely pointless. Yeah. Um, first of all, consistency is not predictable for the most part. There are there are some minor predictors, but they're mostly just nibbling away at the edges. Um, like 90% of consistency is just going to be random chance. It's going to be unexplained. Uh, secondly, consistency is not consistent itself. Um, a great example of a guy who's considered um, an inconsistent wide receiver right now would be someone like Tyler Lockett, who has these huge blow-up games and then disappears for long stretches. Um, and that's the narrative. Tyler Lockett is one of the most inconsistent receivers in the league in terms of outcomes. But for like three years, Tyler Lockett had the highest rate of like any player in the NFL of scoring exactly one touchdown. Never scored two, <laughs> rarely scored zero. He was getting you like one touchdown a week. Like every other week, he got you one touchdown. He was like the most consistent wide receiver in the league, and now he's known as the most inconsistent wide receiver in the league. Did Tyler Lockett change? No. You know, consistency is not predictable. It's not consistent. Um, and then thirdly, from a fantasy perspective, it just doesn't matter. Even if it was predictable and it was consistent, it doesn't make a difference. You know, the, the idea is, would you rather have a wide receiver who scores 10 points every week or a wide receiver who scores um, five points three times and then... Um, 40. And then, yeah, 40 <laughs> the next, you know. And the reality is, in order for that to matter, your fantasy game would have to be within five points and you'd have to be on the losing end. Because if you lose by 12, it doesn't matter if your consistent wide receiver got you an extra five points. It just doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, and, and the vast, vast, vast majority of fantasy matchups are just complete blowouts. They're walkovers. Um, even between two closely matched teams, one team's going to win by 40. And it doesn't matter. You know, the blow-up game has a chance of turning the tides. The consistent game by and large, won't matter. Um, and then another point is consistency. If you if you average together a bunch of inconsistent things, you get a consistent thing. You know, it's it's portfolio theory. Um, some mentioned this offseason that they would rather have two running backs who had been very consistent in 2021 over two running backs who had been marginally more productive but wildly inconsistent in 2021. And so I looked at it and I said, okay, well, if you compare... If you say you had one guy had a backfield of the two consistent guys and one guy had a backfield of the two inconsistent guys, the two inconsistent guys would have outscored the two consistent guys like 11 out of 16 weeks. Because when one guy's having his dud game, the other guy's having his blow up game, right? It's, it's not like they're both blowing up and both putting up duds on the same week. Yeah. If you have a bunch of inconsistent players and your lineup features eight, nine, 10 guys, um, all that inconsistency comes out in a wash and the teams wind up almost equally consistent either way and if and they so even and if they yeah. don't it's like and, and you end up losing a launch a bunch of close games it means that you had you had a lot of good players most likely but it just didn't work out in that in, in that perspective right. I would think. yeah i mean you can't you fantasy football is always going to be you know 50 percent luck 50 percent skill yeah. when i win it's skill and when i lose it's luck <laughs> um <laughs> Actually, I'm a pretty good fantasy football player, so maybe 55% scale, 45% luck. There you go. Um, but, yeah, it, so it's not really valuable. And, and, and then the kicker for me is, even if this was valuable, even if this was predictable, even if this was consistent from year to year, even if it mattered, right, the best way to make a consistent or inconsistent lineup is not drafting consistent or inconsistent players. It's, it's stacking or counter-stacking. You know, like if I pair a consistent quarterback with his consistent wide receiver, the result is going to be inconsistent because when the quarterback has a big game, the receiver is going to have a big game. When the quarterback has a small game, the receiver is going to have a small game. Their, their results are, it's called, you know, serial correlation. Um, and so that will increase the variance in my roster. If I pair a quarterback with his running back, it's going to be the opposite effect. Um, so even if I cared about consistency, which to be absolutely clear, in case I haven't yet, I don't. I don't even consider it. It's not worth considering. Me neither. Um, except in, you know, like DFS. This is why stacking is so big in DFS. Um, or like the really big, like best ball mania tournament where your goal is to be first out of 100,000 entries. Um, if you want to increase your variance there, 
doesn't matter which players are consistent or inconsistent, just stack or, or do counter stacks or, you know, run backs or whatever. I love it. This is, this has been a fantastic conversation. I'm going to be looking forward to this every week throughout the year. And I just want to, I want to end this on uh, with one more question. Um, how did you become a Denver Broncos fan? Because it seems like everyone I enjoy doing podcasts with is either a Steelers fan or affiliated with the Broncos on some level, emotionally or work-wise like Cecil Lammy. And, and it just amazes me that the, that the two teams that I, I can't stand to, to, to root for, or I, I like to hate are the Broncos and Steelers. And I always wind up having the most enjoyable podcasts with people who were fans of those teams. Um, I've become much less of a diehard fan over the year, but sure. I, the reality is I was born in Colorado Springs, Colorado in 1984. So, you know, yeah. like I did not know life without John Elway until I was, I mean, what, 14, 15 years old. Um, so yeah, I, I grew up a Broncos fan, um, watched him win a lot of games, watched him win a lot of Super Bowls. As, as you get more into football, um, analysis. And I think you can speak to this too. A lot of people, they don't lose their passion for the game. They don't lose their passion for the players, but they kind of lose yeah. their passion for specific teams. All else being equal, I'd rather the Broncos win on Sunday than not. You know, it'd be nice to get another Super Bowl. Although I, you know, I realize that our franchise has been blessed with an embarrassment of riches. And I don't, you know, a lot of people are losing their mind after going so long without making the playoffs. But I feel like I'm still way out ahead in terms of like fan payoff over my life. So I'm not even sweating it. <laughs> yeah. It's all, they're, they're an awesome franchise and they have a, they have a fantastic history. And, and as much as I hate to it, hate, hate to, to think about it, you know, John Elway was a, an absolutely fantastic quarterback. And um, I got to see him play a lot because my father lived out there. So I was, I was out there watching, um, and often saw a lot of training camp coverage and footage and, and, you know, during, during those years for sure. So, um, but anyway, this was, this was a fantastic, great conversation. Um, all I can think of is the word fantastic right now. I don't know why, but I, actually I do because the past 60 minutes. So, you know, you can find Adam Harstead at Adam Harstead on Twitter. Um, and also of course at football guys does fan great work. We're going to give it maybe kind of a different adjective at this point. Um, and uh, stay tuned for next week. Thanks again.